We lost a great race car driver on January 30th, 2020, a beloved fundraiser for Riley's Children's Hospital and fierce advocate for colon cancer screening. John Andretti's accomplishments behind the steering wheel were only exceeded by his humanitarian efforts. With an unparalleled life and career to celebrate, I've assembled a podcast feature that makes 16 stops along the way, all told by those who knew him and loved him. His legendary uncle, Mario Andretti, said it best. Try to, to put together how many drivers have driven midgets on dirt, asphalt, sprint cars on dirt, asphalt, sports prototypes, indie cars, stock cars, and top fuel. You tell me who has done all that. No one. No one that I could ever remember. I mean, that I could ever put together. I mean, there's no way there's another one that has done all that. He's alone. He's alone there. In the first installment of Remembering John Andretti, we have the A Short Track reporter and author, Mark Bones Borsier, who recalls seeing John in his formative dirt track and paved oval outings early as 1981. His storytelling, his memory, all fantastic gifts to us to kick off this series. All brought to you in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast by the Justice Brothers, Cooper Tires, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Bones, anytime I want to learn about what is happening in the fine American tradition of short track racing, whether it's today or going decades back, you, your work, your books, your Facebook page. It is just this Bible, this assembly of chapters of divinity. And we're so fortunate that you, having been in and around and covered so many drivers, many of whom folks have never known in terms of big national fandom, but stars of uh, short track racing. One of those is a certain person I know you had an affinity for, myself as well. John Andretti. Where does uh, where does this John Andretti guy come into your register? And we should maybe preface things a little bit by maybe not the normal way we think John Andretti would come onto the racing scene. Uh, the thing that grabbed me about him, Marshall, was that you know he always struck me as a guy who was tr- uh, trying. You know, he was a great. Um, I guess striver is the right word. You know, he was always trying to, uh, trying to do a lot of different things and, and, and climb that ladder. Uh, the first time I saw him in person was at uh, a little quarter mile track in Seekonk, Massachusetts, absolutely round, uh, semi banked. Uh, he ran a USAC race, non-winged midget. Uh, and he, uh, what I remember was I actually went to Seekonk that night to interview him because I was sort of fascinated by this, guy who was doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that and you know to see him you know at a place that was maybe a couple hours east of my house in connecticut was kind of interesting because normally a guy like that would be somewhere out in the midwest but uh i went to see him specifically to talk about that jumping around kind of career that he was putting together and he was clear that that night i talked to him uh before the heat race and talked to him after the feature uh and he was as hard on himself as you'd ever figure, you know, same as he was later on. Um, but he wanted to do a lot of things. He wanted to experience as many different kind of cars as he as he could. Uh, and, and I think, you know, you knew that the goal was, at that time, the goal was Indianapolis. And uh, 
I think he was just going to try to get there by making, uh, casting as wide a net as he could almost just to try to, you know, try to, um, you know, build a following and, and, and maybe build a, a resume at the same time. Thinking of John's introduction to the sport, it does not fit the same path that his cousin Michael followed. We're thinking junior open wheel, super V's and form Atlantics and just grooming himself in the most direct pipeline to back then what was the cart IndyCar series. If anything, it seems like, and it feels like John's introduction to motor racing really mirrored that of his father, Aldo and his uncle Mario back in the what forties and fifties, more this, this short track mindset. He got an early start. What was it? 80, 81 or so in fairly non-traditional <laughs> means as well it was a dirt a dirt coupe uh, on a pavement track in pennsylvania i don't think it's the first thing he ever drove and i i think he was kind of an oval oriented guy because unlike michael you know who grew up obviously under mario's wing right there in pennsylvania john was out here in indianapolis so you know i think if you wanted to go to the races just to watch racing you know you probably went to kokomo or Terre Haute or bloomington or these you know all of the little dirt ovals that dot the midwest here but it was when he was going to college in Northampton, Pennsylvania. He was living with Mario uh, and the family, Michael included, uh, in Nazareth, uh, not far away from Northampton. And, and I don't know how it came about, but he started, I never did ask him, although we talked about this often, uh, the fact that he raced a, a dirt modified coupe on a pavement track uh, at Dorney Park, which is an amusement park in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I don't know what it was about Dorney Park. It, you know, it would have been a great place for asphalt cars, but I think the rules kind of restricted it to dirt-type equipment, traditional, you know, tall, narrow chassis, uh, you know, just an awkward-looking car on a tight little racetrack. But, but that was John's uh, baptism by fire, I guess, because it was a, 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 a rough place. And uh, I can't imagine that some of the people were <laughs> very, very open about having a guy who they probably saw as a big, you know, this star named kid coming in and, and maybe taking some of their payoff money. So uh, I'm sure he didn't have an easy time, but, but he always talked about liking it and he, he drove for the Heffelfinger family, which is a big racing name, uh, was a big racing name at that track. And it surprised me uh, pleasantly that whenever we would talk about those days over the years, he would always talk about maintaining some kind of touch with that family, which I thought was pretty cool. You know, you, a lot of people throw, uh, throw overboard the people who help him early on, you know, intentionally or otherwise. And I think John just was always connected to everybody he crossed paths with. That's absolutely the narrative of his life bones. So interestingly, he goes from what sounds like a bit of a scattershot introduction in the very first couple of years to really trying to do a more formal route His name starts to pop up on a lot of USAC, uh, both National Midget and National Sprint Car Championships. Really, this 83-84 era of his is where it seems like he really gets stuck in there. And then by 85, uh, starts to have more attention starting to come towards him as a young professional with a fairly famous last name. But then also starts to really ramp up that national sprint car, silver crown, etc. type uh, effort on his part. What do you recall from him in terms of 
racing, competing, learning, and fitting in with admittedly a last name that might not have fit so well with some of the uh, the folks hoping to gain stardom without Nendretti on the grid. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I mean, jealousy is just a, a human uh, human instinct. I think for every fan that probably thought it was cool to have an Andretti in the field, there was probably, you know, two or three racers in the pits who who weren't that hepped up on the idea, you know, about a guy who they saw, again, coming in as this big, uh, a guy kind of riding in on his name, which I, I never saw John that way, but I could almost see where, a, you know, a down-and-out racer, uh, you know, with, with no big name, might see it that way. You know, it's just like I said, it's human nature. But I think a lot of the jumping around that, that John did um, almost worked against him in a way because it's hard to put together, you know, this eye-popping body of work like we see in some people's backgrounds. When you're in, you know, that modified in Pennsylvania for a year and then you're in USAC running against guys like Mel Kenyon in the midget division for a couple of years and then you're on the West Coast racing CRA sprint cars with Brad Nofsinger as your teammate, you know, it's, we're, he, he never shied away from competition. I mean, he was always where the big, big names were in each division, but, you know, again, when you do that, it's hard to, it's hard to pile up that, you know, that kind of a resume that a guy like, um, oh, let's say Tony Stewart or Jeff Gordon. I mean, Jeff moved on when he was very, very young, but he'd been running USAC national divisions for, for a while, you know, in, in great cars. And, you know, he, he sort of built up that resume that, I don't think John ever gave himself a chance to do, you know, you, you, and, and when you're, when you're jumping at these other opportunities, whenever they come along, uh, in other forms of racing, it, I think it meant early on that he was going to miss a midget race here and there, a sprint car race here and there. And I think to the owners, sometimes that makes it hard, uh, maybe to hire a guy that, you know, you're not sure how long you're going to have him. So, and they were all good people, but I think in John's case, it, it sort of worked against him getting, you know, the very best rides, although Raleigh Hemlings Mitchell was great. Uh, and the, and the skull bandit car he drove out, the sprint car he drove at Ascot was great. But a lot of the other rides that John had on any kind of a steady basis were sort of, um, with no disrespect to anybody, maybe, you know, good second tier cars, but not anything he was going to, you know, um, put big numbers on the board with I, probably no matter who drove it. Um, so, you know, again, I think it, 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 it's a double-edged sword. I mean, running, running in a lot of different divisions like he did can really get your name spread around, but it can also keep you from, um, piling up the, the, the kind of record that, that, that makes headlines in, you know, Chris Economaki's paper or that, um, you know, that, that looks really good to an IndyCar owner or a NASCAR uh, team owner. You mentioned Raleigh Humling. I mean, he was a huge benefactor if we're talking in terms of john's short track career you know by 85 it really looked like john was able to dig in and, and not bounce around as much although bouncing around is i mean that's his his <laughs> story but that yeah. i seem to recall really 85 ish was a year where he was able to make a little bit of a stand uh yeah. and I, you know i think finished fairly well in the uh, the usac midget uh, points that year do you, what do you recall from that this all right you're maybe carving something here that says you know this is an aptitude that you have and can build from possibly and that's the first car i ever saw him in again it was at the uh at seekonk speedway uh, which is just east of providence rhode island just to kind of pinpoint it uh, although it's right over the massachusetts line 
John was in that car. He ran fourth in the feature that night uh, behind three guys who were in the National Auto National Midget Auto Racing Hall of Fame. Uh, Mel Canyon won it. Uh, Noki Fanaro was second. Drew Fanaro was third. John Jeez. was fourth. Uh, Bobby Seymour, you know, great from the great Seymour Racing family on the East Coast, was fifth. I can't remember much beyond that, but I mean, it was a, a, a great performance for a kid who'd never seen the place and was still, you know, in, in comparison to those guys, a relative rookie in, in midgets. And I thought it was an outstanding performance. And to talk to him after, I mean, you would have thought he, you know, spun out in front of the pack, crashed the champion. I mean, he, he was just so down on it. Uh, and years and years later, I, I mentioned something about this on Facebook the other day. I, I, uh, uh, I, I found a, the official, uh, an official finish for that race posted somewhere on Facebook. So I texted it to John and right away he texted back and said, Oh, we sucked that night. We were terrible. Aww. I couldn't get that place figured out. <laughs> I'm saying, man, you were, you know, for that time and place, he was running with the gods and he, you know, geez, I'm, I'm sorry. You only finished fourth, you know, but that was John. I just think he was, I don't know if he saw himself gathering traction in that period. Uh, the way we can look at it now and see that he was, you know, I think he, he was just always such a determined guy. And again, just a, a trier, you know, I think if, if he ran fourth, he was probably mad that he didn't run third. And if he ran third, you know, same story. He'd have been mad that he didn't run second. So, um, that was him. Bones. What do you recall from this era where you mentioned seeing him now racing for the first time in person, at least in 85, he gets this bizarre <laughs> invite to drive BMW's thousand horsepower Formula One engined IMSA GTP sports car, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and more things, you know, things start to happen for him afterwards. What do you recall from just following him? And I don't know, maybe any, you know, subsequent conversations or interviews where coming out of this 85 season, things really start to grow for him. He never really, he never turns his back on uh, short track racing, but a lot of, a lot of bigger series come calling. IndyCar isn't too far away. He heads to Le Mans 88 and Cup is a few years later uh, in the early 90s and such. But what do you recall from this kind of transformative era where he is able to come out of the short tracks and start to gain opportunity and build a reputation as a true uh, utility knife based off of by and large his body work on dirt. Yeah, it did surprise me. I mean, I remember that, you know, that it was a BMW opportunity that came his way. That seemed rather weird, you know, f for a guy, you know, a report, a writer living in Connecticut at the time. It, because again, he hadn't put together that large body of work because he was jumping around, but that might be one of those things where, like we said, having the Andretti name against, it could work against him at a short track in the eyes of the other, uh, competitors at times, but I think for a company like BMW or you know when he drove for Porsche later on, any of those teams, uh, he was probably worth taking a chance on because you had a marketable name. Uh, if it turned out he wasn't good, well then that was fine. You kind of cut bait and go down the road. But um, you know he was obviously good. He was a personable guy. Uh, if nothing else, I think the name. Um, I don't know how much it helps or hurts anybody, you know, in their career, but I think it does help from the standpoint where you can at least get a test somewhere or you can at least get somebody to call you back. 
uh, you know, I think that probably worked that way for Jacques Villeneuve too. You know, you can, you've got to prove yourself once you get there, but people will answer the phone if the last name is, you know, Villeneuve or Andretti on the other end of the line. Uh, and I think that did, that did work for him. And I wasn't, it wasn't shocking beyond the fact that it was, you know, again, a factory ride in a, in a giant horsepower team. It, it didn't surprise me that he wanted to do something different because that had already been his MO. It's just that now he was doing it, you know, and turning left and right instead of just left. It was just, I think he just saw it as another thing I can try another, another way to uh, spread my wings personally and professionally. Maybe somebody will see this and maybe it'll get me one more rung up the ladder. Bones, let's close on this. So obvious talent demonstrated early on as you saw him, as his results speak to, we're not saying that he was the Tony Stewart uh, on Midwest ovals before Tony Stewart. We're not saying that, but we're saying he belonged. He had success. He, he was clear, clearly uh, a deserved member of the family. What do you remember as the years went on? decades went on because you know you getting out to as many races as you do i'm sure you ran into john uh plenty of times and such curious as someone who knew him for quite some time what the conversations were like and who you saw john develop into your thoughts about who he became afterwards uh, even in retirement in this effort to raise awareness for colon cancer well, first of all, I mean, I think everybody's going to remember that smile. Although, you know, when I really do drill down and look back at it, I, it seems to me that I walked up to him in a lot of places. And the first thing was a frown because, you know, maybe I wanted to say hello because you hadn't seen him in six months or whatever. And then he was, you know, knee deep and trying to figure out why his cup car wasn't going good that weekend. You know, I saw him uh, in a lot of different teams, some in a lot of different situations at a lot of different racetracks. So it's not all happy moments, but as soon as, as soon as you kind of cracked it in your mind that he wasn't, uh, necessarily in a talkative mood, you know, you'd stop by later and there he was with that big smile again, you know, and he was, he didn't burn a single bridge. I don't think in his life, uh, with any race team in any series at any level. Um, and I think that that endeared him to everybody. I mean, again, just that nobody was ever going to fire him for not trying hard enough. You know what I mean? He mm. was, he, and, and I think there are guys, you know, you, we've all either whispered about a guy in a different series, uh, or had somebody else whisper to us about a guy in a different series that was maybe, you know, coasting, you know, he was cashing the check and, and kind of doing the cruise and collect deal. I don't think anybody would have ever accused John of that because, he was just so self-motivated. And then as, as the career went along and it, it, it worked itself toward its end. Um, I never saw the, the, you know, the, the, the downside of him as a person, you know, you saw him in maybe in teams that you thought he was better than or deserved better than, and that's not to knock the teams. I mean, everybody's doing their best, but it was a shame to me that maybe the, the best part of his career passed, sometimes when he wasn't in the best rides, you know, he was able to win with Jim Hall and he was able to win with Kelly Arbrough and he was able to win with Petty Enterprises. And that was great, but it would have been, you know, nice if the numbers had been bigger. And I think he deserved that. Uh, and what you mentioned about his later life, you know, I, I actually got to see him a lot more in the past few years than I had for maybe the six or eight years before that, because he was around here quite a bit with his son, Jarrett, 
at the sprint car races. Um, and John was a hands-on guy, so you knew better than to even walk over and say hello. Mm. But, you know, during intermission or after the heat race or after they'd made their tire choice and their gear selection and all that, uh, if there was a down moment, he was still the same John that he'd always been. And, you know, I, I did talk to him many, many times after he had his diagnosis. And, you know, you always try to keep the, um, you always worry in a situation like that, that you want to keep the conversation positive. Um, so if I texted him, I would text him a picture of him in a, a midget or some, you know, crap, <laughs> crap box, I guess we could say a uh, sprint card, you know, something he was just running to fill in with. Um, and I would always mention, you know, uh, Hey, you know, we're asking, we're, ho- we're, uh, hoping the best for you and, you know, hope today's a good day and all that. And he would always text back with a comment about the photo and never, ever, ever addressed the health issue, mm. which to me was, that's just John, you know, he, he knew why you did it. You know, he might say thanks, but he wasn't going to say, Oh yeah, I had this test today and that test today. He would just, you know, he'd say, what a cool photo that is. I hope you guys are doing well thanks you know that kind of thing which you know that was him i i'm I'm glad that he inspired as many people as he did you know i know a lot of people who have gone and uh, been checked for different types of things because of john's example um um, i'm like i said i'm 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 really heartened by that but it doesn't surprise me at all i think that's just who that i want to say that kid (laughs) that's just who that guy was you know he was just upbeat and um anything he encountered he was going to turn real positive Thank you for listening to Remembering John Andretti on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Brought to you by the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and Cooper Tires. If this is your first time listening, more than 900 episodes are available at MarshallPruittPodcast.com. We also have a subscribe page where Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and plenty of other listening options are readily available.